Okay, so uh, obviously the current situation could be a source of sadness, a source of tension, but difficult situations also sometimes bring out the best in people. So I'm going to point to five themes of things where I think we could draw inspiration from uh, what is going on right now. Okay, so let us start with theme number one. Okay, so some people have argued that uh, the events of October 7th Shema show the failures of Zionism. See, even with your state, you couldn't prevent the pogrom. And I think what they're trying to say is that what's the idea of a, a pogrom as opposed to a war? So just contrast this surprise with, let's say, the surprise in 73. Like in 73, we were surprised in the Yom Kippur War, but the Egyptians and Syrians attacked, you know, the Israeli army. That's who was attacked. Okay, and here we have an attack on civilians. So obviously, attack on civilians sounds makes you think much more of you know the Cossacks coming to your town in Kishinev and uh, and butchering people. So the fact that here you had a successful attack on civilians makes you say, oh, so you see the Zionist project doesn't really change anything. Okay, so I would argue that's quite short-sighted. Meaning that was true for like a few hours that that was true. But in Kishinev, you didn't have like the Israeli army show up, even before the Israeli army up. Like, no one in Kishinev knew how to defend themselves. So you didn't even have like the local security forces fighting off the people attacking. Right? You just had them being slaughtered. Okay, whereas here, you already had the local security forces fighting. And then after a certain amount of hours, again, it took too long, but the Israeli army showed up. And after a certain amount of time, right, there were no terrorists left alive in Israel. And then after a certain amount of time, we were able to invade Gaza and, you know, hopefully successfully eliminate Hamas remains to be seen. But it's not really at all true historically to say, oh, look, the state of Israel didn't change anything. It is just like it was under the Tsar in Kishinev. Okay, that, as I said, maybe that was true for an hour, for a couple of hours. It's certainly not true in the long term. And it makes you think a little bit about Rav Soloveitchik's famous drasha. Okay, so some of you may have read Rav Soloveitchik has a drasha called Kodudido Fake, where he talks about the state of Israel uh, being this amazing event, and he uses imagery from Shir Hashirim as it's God knocking on the door, and it's calling for us to respond. And he famously says that there, there are six knocks. Okay, who has read this? The six knocks of Kodudido Fake? Okay, Khoni, read it? No? Okay, you should all read it, the six knocks. But I have to say, like, one of the knocks that never inspired me so much is one that is relevant to this. Like, Rav Sveik says, one of the knocks is that now, Dam Yehudi no Hefker. Like, Jewish blood is not a free-for-all. I mean, there is a body out there that is, you know, its reason for existence is to defend Jews all over the world. And that is the state of Israel. And uh, for Rav Slavichik, that is one great aspect of Medina Yisrael, which is God knocking on the door. I mean, some of the other aspects of the state of Israel is a refuge, which we've definitely experienced, like with Russian Jewry, with Ethiopian Jewry, etc. But one of the six knocks is simply the Dam Yudino Efker. So that is something I think that we could take. And uh, quite the contrary, I don't think that this shows the Zionist project as a failure. It shows what it succeeds, how it doesn't change the nature of Jewish experience. Okay, that's number one. Okay, number two... I think something very interesting that's emerged is that a lot of the responses have been more civilian initiatives than government-run. In fact, uh, I actually don't obviously don't get into a political discussion right now, but I don't think the government has been incredibly impressive at that in terms of uh, the stuff I'm about to describe. But a lot of civilians have just said, "Oh, soldiers need food. Let's do a project of bringing the, everybody, uh, you know, a barbecue." Right? They need more. Even think about it. You probably have all seen advertisements for like raising money for equipment. Like bulletproof vests, and you would go reaction wait, bulletproof vests, like doesn't the government provide that? But somehow there was a sense that there weren't enough or they weren't getting around quickly enough, and you needed civilian initiatives to get it done. 
so I th and oh, I'll give you a third example. So you have food, you have equipment. What about caring for people who've been displaced? Right? Many of you may know that a lot of the Yishuvim that are Otev Aza, right near Gaza, were evacuated. Some of the cities in the north were evacuated. Some of the places that were evacuated have a lot of people. Like Kiryat Shmona is 20,000 people. Okay, I'm not sure how much of Stero was evacuated. Stero has 30,000 people. Okay, so these are a lot of people who need a new place and need uh, you know, care in various ways. And very often, again, it's been more civilian initiatives than, than governmental projects. So uh, rather than being negative about the government, I say we should take a certain pride in the ability of the civilian initiative to make a difference. And maybe there's like a broader theme here. I think sometimes modern man, because government is so big, we think that government's supposed to solve all our problems. Like we'll pay a lot of taxes and then government takes care of everything. And maybe that's just not the way the world works, that government is big and unwieldy and not always so effective. And at that point, very often smaller units and organizations are really needed to solve people problems. And I think that's not just true for wartime. We should think about that all the time. Like maybe the answer isn't, oh, let's get government to pay for it. The answer is let's do some civilian initiative that will address it. Okay, that's number two. Number three. Ah, so I live in a yeshuv called the Lone Shvot. You can look this up. I did not make it up. One of the Supreme Court justices is a man named Noam Solberg who lives in my yeshuv. Okay, so twice this past week, I drove back late at night, and you know, the security's a little title now, and the man in the booth with his bulletproof vest and the gun was Noam Solberg. Okay, so I thought it was quite interesting. Oh, here in Israel, Supreme Court justices do shmirah during wartime. Okay, there they are in the booth. I was trying to imagine, you know, in America, they're a tough time, like, oh, Clarence Thomas is like at the gate there with his, gu with his gun. I just, I just don't think that's going to happen. Right? That is not going to happen over there. And I, I think that points to a larger split that if you think about the difference between the American army and the Israeli army, and even though there's been some talk about this, I think we should never shift. Right? The, there is some question people will say, oh, instead of a people's army, maybe go to a professional army. Right? Not have a draft, but have a lot of financial incentives to get people to go to the army. There's been talk of that in Israel, and if you've ever read about that. But I would suggest it would be a big mistake. That you see what happens in the American model, of course. Only, I'm going to overstate, guys, I'm sorry. But mostly poor people do the army. Okay, poor people are people who don't have such great job prospects, so they end up doing the army, but, you know, rich people from Scarsdale don't do the army, right? That is, uh, probably most of you don't know any personal friend who is, went to the army, or you know one guy, maybe, right? So that's what happens, you have a professional army, and there's something very beautiful about, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is, right? You are expected to help out, you are expected to be part of things, and that's why I don't think Israel should ever switch from the people's army to the professional army, and then you have Supreme Court justices in the booth, you know, doing shmira. Okay, that he, he, he turned, by the way, I realized the thing. He t I tried to give him like a, one of those vaflim and he returned it down. I think they're tired of getting treats. They want like apples and pears. So I have to fill my car with fruits. I think like they, like, they, oh, everyone, what does everyone give the shmira? Everyone like brings like another candy bar. Like, how many candy bars can you eat on shmira in general? So I, I think they've had it. Okay, so if you guys want to support this shmira, you guys bring them apples. Okay, but uh, in any case, and that's even, of course, manifest in Milim, right? As we've spoken about in the past, there's a remarkable thing here that the people who are in the army full time are not the ones who are supposed to do the job. They're just supposed to hold the line until the reservists come to play. And you have this amazing thing that 350,000 people have been called up for reserve duty. Like, think about how, what percentage of the country that is. Like, imagine if that percent of Americans got called up for army reserve duty. And that's, again, it's a people's army, not a professional army. Okay, number four. Uh, the courage of certain people. So some of you know that, uh, unfortunately, uh, Benny Kalmanzin is a fellow who is the, was the Rosh Hashiva of Oniel, who has unfortunately lost several relatives. He has lost three relatives, two in this war and one before, uh, due to terrorism. 
And one of the people he lost was his son. And the story is that his son had a lot of experience in fighting terror. That's what he studied in the army and what he was involved in. So when he heard what was happening on Simchus Torah morning, he didn't get, it's not that he got it, that he got a call he had to go. But he said, I hear what's happening, I'm going to go. He just decided to go. He took his brother and the nephew, and the three of them drove. They heard that the worst place was Kibbutz Beiri, and they went there. And they spent several hours uh, escorting people out, like to go to house, and they found that there were Jews in the house. It was actually very interesting because they had to convince people that they were Jews outside, that it wasn't the terrorists. They would say things like Shema Yisrael and things like that to try to get the people inside to realize it was okay. And uh, after many hours of escorting uh, Jews to safety, unfortunately in one house there was a terrorist waiting uh, who shot and killed Elchanan, killed the son of Rav Kalman's Right? Thank God the, the, his brother and the nephew survived. But he was killed. But if you think about it, like what an amazing thing! Like someone who wasn't even called, he didn't get an official directive from the army to come try to save people, to save his brethren, save fellow Jews. But he went anyway, and he was successful at doing so before falling. So I think that kind of courage is something to be aware of. And finally, the fifth thing I would say is that many of you know that the year before this war broke out was one of the most contentious in Israeli history with tremendous arguing about something called judicial reform, like should you change the system of the Supreme Court. But of course, that was not the only issue. That was a symptom of larger splits between, and again, a lot of, along a lot of lines, between right and left, between religious and secular, between Ashkenazim and Spartan, right? All those tensions were coming to the fore. So it was really a year of tremendous tension. And now, I, I can't say that they're totally muted, but they're certainly not heard very much. And certainly out there in the field, you have a lot of pictures of, you know, people from the right and the left and people with a keeper without a keeper, right, uh, coming together to serve. And I think it's a very healthy reminder that at the end of the day, there is a unifying force here that is more powerful than the divisions. And I'll just, there are a thousand examples, but I'll just mention one. Okay, some of you may know that the army only serves kosher food, this way that the secular and the religious can serve together. So there were te- restaurants in Tel Aviv that wanted to bring food to the army bases. And these are restaurants that certainly are not, you know, the owners are not big believers in Judaism, but they kosher their kitchen so they could bring food to the army. There was a sense that this is not a time to, you know, emphasize division. This is a time to do something that could be universally appreciated. So you know what? Even if we wouldn't have done it any other occasion, we will actually know someone was involved in koshering the kitchen. Right? We'll kosher our kitchen and send food off to the army. So just to summarize, I think here in our tough tough uh, lo- um, plate time of uh, life here, there are a lot of things to take joy in, right? One, as I said, there is a certain endorsement of the Zionist project here. Number two, the ability of civilians to take initiative, not just to wait for the government, that the civilians have done so much. Number three, uh, the real sense of the people's army, that it's not just, you know, oh, the army's for poor kids who need a job, that everybody's involved. Number four, the, the courage of a lot of individuals, of thousands and thousands of individuals. And number five, uh, the fact that with all our arguments, thank God, there's sometimes we do remember that uh, Jewish brother in unity is actually more powerful than all the splits. So uh, you guys, on a certain level, I know I'm going to say something funny, on a certain level, there's a certain fortune you have to be in here this year. That uh, I realize in some ways it's not exactly the year you imagined and you like to go on more Tulim and whatever the case may be. I totally appreciate that. At the same time, it might be a year of growth and educational opportunity, which is more powerful than the average year. And please, God, you should all benefit from that.